0: Not to sound like a stoner, but, uh, like, do you ever think about how big the sun is, man? Like, (laughs) no, but really, it's, we know the sun's massive. It's it's really, really big. I'm not even going to look up the number, because it's, it's just kind of a number. After a certain point, there's just no sense of scale. There's no real sense of scale. The sun's incomprehensibly big. And even if we have a measurement, unless we put it in context, we can't really do anything with it. Because raw data, or data, if you're a Star Trek fan, raw data is meaningless. It's, it's useless. Because you have to interpret things to ascribe that meaning. That's sort of what we were talking about in the uh, last episode, a month ago, if you remember it. So, this month, we're talking about how we turn raw data into something that makes sense. Something with meaning. Welcome to this episode on interpretation, and welcome to the subjective space. I think the obvious place to start is in art. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it does... And I'd like to hammer home the creative nature of artistic interpretation. Or better put, the interpretation of art. Because when you read a book, you're transposing your version of what these events look like onto the text. Like, there's a a very famous, (laughs) somewhat famous, I'm, I'm not sure, social media is weird, but there's a post where someone's talking about how strange reading is, how strange books are, and that it's dead trees where we've placed ink upon it, and we stare at that ink on those dead trees and hallucinate for hours on end. Or I, I remember reading the Dark Tower series, and in my head, my interpretation of Roland, the protagonist, it w- <laughs> it was just uh, John Marston from the first Red Dead Redemption game. <laughs> That's how I pr- pictured uh, Roland. So it was strange to see uh, cover art that undermined that depiction in my head. Like, it's deeply startling to watch an adaptation of a work where the version of a character in your head is contrasted with how it's portrayed in an an adaptation. We tend to undersell the fact that engaging with media is an act of creativity. Like, there's great precedent in this with the post-structuralist mindset stemming from figures like uh, Roland Barthes, record both of which I'll probably bring up later. I've alluded to this before, but in, in case you haven't picked up on it, I don't write scripts for these episodes, Is what I really want to do with this project is just have an outlet for me to talk about philosophy so the people in my life don't have to deal with that. Not to say that they're unsupportive, it's just that I've had moments where someone's had to tell me, like, Okay, this is very interesting. But it's 9am and I don't want to question the nature of existence. This is a bit much. Let me drink my coffee in peace, please. <laughs> anyway, let's break down the creative dance of interpretation that occurs within Art. Actually, let's start with the artist. That might be a better way for us to find our footing on this discussion. So, let's say I'm a novelist and I get an idea for a story. Whether it's a character, a setting, a plot line, a scene, whatever it is, there's something that I'm building off of. There is something that I want to engage with artistically. Now, At this moment, I'm not going to litigate the nature of inspiration, but let's just consider it as I have an idea pop in my head or there's something that I take notice of, whether it's a thought or an experience or just something on the street or something someone says. Now, I'm not going to generalize of how that becomes a story because it's different for everyone. But there is interpretation there of this is something I want to engage with, interact with, expand upon. So what does it mean? How can I put this into context? That's, that's why whenever I, I see posts, they're like, oh, this is a scene from the book I'll never write. I'm <laughs> I'm honestly a bit frustrated because it's like, well, you're you've done the easy thing. Don't show this to me. This is this is nothing. Write the book or keep your mouth shut. Like, yeah, it's an interesting scene, but it's meaningless because there's no context. That's the as that's the important thing of writing is providing context for these good scenes. Why are you wasting my time with this nonsense? You've just told me you're not going to make this meaningful. Why are you putting filler content onto my timeline? Okay, rant over. Let's talk about drafts. So you in- interpret this idea. Well, What does it mean? How can I put it into context? How can I build characters, a story, a plot? All of this, how... Can I flesh out this idea that I want to engage with? And you write a first draft, whether you're outlining or what people, <laughs> what some people call pantsing, which is writing by the seat of your pants. However you do it, you end up with a first draft. And then there's a, another level of interpretation of what did I end up with? How does this compare to what I'm going for? How does this? How has what I'm going for changed as I've fleshed out this idea? And this isn't the end of the process. A lot of people write multiple drafts. At the very least, I know that Stephen King will write a first draft and then leave it for six weeks before coming back to it and thinking, well, what would I want out of the story if I was a reader? What can I focus on? How can I transform this into a better product? But that's the general process of interpretation from idea to the finished book. Not including, like, editing, line editing, when... That's more so the process of articulating what you're trying to express better. And then it reaches the audience. And Stephen King compares this to a magic trick. He says, well, let's just think about a cage with a white rabbit in it. And on that rabbit's back is in blue ink. The number thirteen. I've just now taken an image in Stephen King's head, taken it, and then processed it, found my own version of it. Like I'm, I'm picturing this, and then transmitted that thought to you. And by the way, this thought experiment is from uh, his book on writing which is part autobiography, part discussion on the craft of writing. But the next example he uses is a shed. You you know what a shed looks like, right? It's not what Stephen King's thinking of. What's in my head's not what Stephen King's thinking of. What's in your head? They're all sheds, but there's most of the time, I would assume... (laughs) something associated, some sort of picture or image or memory of what we think of when we hear the word shed. And if you remember the podcast on intersubjectivity, this sort of aligns with my idea of language, for the most part, being the intersubjective middleman between subjective realities. Like, the word blue, it doesn't matter if What I'm experiencing and what you're experiencing are completely different. We're saying blue in response to the same sort of phenomena or input or raw data. But let's dig deeper into the interpretation done by the audience and the creativity that takes place there. Because whenever you consume a media, very rarely are you just turning your brain off well, <laughs> if you're engaging with the media, some people do want to turn their brain off and not engage, and that's fine. Life is hard and we're all just so tired. But there's a level of analysis and interpretation that goes beyond the text. Where in my my opinion is that fanon or fan canon is much much more weighty than something in <laughs> I'm trying not to name names, but you know who I'm talking about. Something that the author said after the fact. Where like, well, if you've always thought this character was gay, then why isn't that in the text? You wrote the text. If (laughs) if that's your interpretation of the character, put it in the text. That is rant number two. I've got to go back through this and make sure I haven't sworn... Or they'll kick me off iTunes. But I do think there is a certain beauty in the way that audiences will fill in details about the world, about the characters, about situations. Because whenever I'm talking about interpretation, I'm not just talking about themes, analysis, you know, literary analysis and all that. But the way, say, when a novel reaches the reader, it sort of explodes because if you really engage with that story, there's a chance you may have more to say about those characters and that world than the author does. Because with a piece of media, it's it's a closed circuit. After a certain point, it has to be done. That's the nature in, of art. It's it's in some sense unfinished, because you can't add every single detail in there. And to me, that's sort of the point, because the, the other half of that equation, the thing that finishes a work of art, a piece of media, however you want to describe it. By the way, I do agree with Hannah Arendt's uh, <laughs> distinction between cultural objects and entertainment and all that, but I'm, I'm not here to litigate that either. But where this work of art becomes complete is in the mind of the audience. Because it can continue to live on and expand in meaningful ways particular to that person and with the connectivity afforded by the internet we've seen this articulated in spaces like fandoms or fan fiction things like that fan spaces where in in my view the creative role of the audience is fully articulated now i want to be delicate with this transition because Really what I'm going off of is the way in which we gain personal meaning and understanding through interpretation, rather than solely through the text as a thing in itself. So I'm very much an anti-literalist when it comes to holy books. I'm coming at this from a Campbellian perspective, where I'm absolutely not dismissing religion or religious belief or anything like that. But rather, seeing the role of myths and stories and uh, the spiritual ways in which we engage with the world around us as a means to addressing the human condition. To going into the unconscious, the unknown, and returning having changed, all that, you know, the (laughs) monomyth. And personally, I, I find that stories are the main way in which humans process change. But back to holy books, I, I see them as more of a, a tool for facilitating interpretation of these more uh, existential, metaphysical concerns. Or, in general, again, uh, as, as a way of addressing the human condition. For a specific example, I think about the verse in the Bible, the uh, beginning of John. In the beginning, there was the Word, and with the Word, there was God. So, in my reading of that it seems like there's a pretty clear distinction. And bear with me, I know I'm getting into theology, but I, I am making a point here. But there seems to be a distinction between uh, the Word and the Bible, the the actual text. So I would argue that the Word of God isn't you know the, the actual things written by the apostles, by Moses, all that, but rather the interpretation. Like, I've... All my life, I've heard of the, and again, don't worry, this isn't turning into a Christian podcast, I'm just using this as a cultural touchstone, but I've heard the the Bible be described as a living book, because again, it's not about the literal meaning, the semantic meaning, but the pragmatic meaning, the -the in-the-moment interpretation. And really, that's, that's a fascinating thing about any holy book. Like, I have a collection of them up on the wall above where I record, where depending on what's on your mind, you can open a random page, and even if you've seen the same section a thousand times before, you can get something different out of it. Or at least that's my gold standard for a holy book, whether it's the Bible, or the Tao Te Ching, or the I Ching, or the Book of the Law... Whatever, you <laughs> pick your poison. And going back to that Combellian uh, view, there's this idea of religion being this this window drawn around nothingness, so you can have a relationship with it. Not necessarily nothingness, but something beyond, where there, there's a natural limit to our knowledge. So, to cope with this, it's helpful to uh, have some means of of imposing interpretation upon that thing which is inaccessible to us as humans. And again, this <laughs> this isn't a theology podcast or a Christian podcast or anything like that. And I don't think this is unique to holy books. I just think it's more distilled in that form. That's what they've been written and built to accomplish. But regardless of your religious affiliation or non-affiliation in my case, there's a fair chance you have some sort of text or something uh, that could (laughs) loosely be described as a text, and we'll get to that, what I mean by that in a second, but that you have something that when you need meaning or reassurance or a means of addressing the human condition, you go back to it, and you find something new, you find inspiration, comfort... Some sense of peace or motivation. It it allows you to interpret existence on a broader basis, whether it is a holy book or a particularly impactful teleseries. series. And I'm I'm, I'm going to take out that pin I put down later. It, this would make be more sensible of a segue if I'd set that up. But I, I'd also like to talk about tarot. Crowley referred to it as the Book of Thoth. I mean, that's that's what he called his tarot deck. But more broadly, I would like to talk about uh, tarot in a, a secular interpretive uh, context. Because I, I don't see it as pre- predictive. And if someone <laughs> someone's showing you a tarot is like, it means that this is going to happen specifically... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Most likely a grifter. I had to pause and go back because I swore, and then swore about my swearing. And I I keep pointing this out because I plan to do, like, live talks at some point, and I don't want to startle people with the fact that I swear like a sailor. But the, the way I understand tarot is that it's 78 cards that have been assigned uh, as many different forms of existence, of as many ways uh, that you can be as a human, as well, maybe not possible. That feels like uh, generalization, but there's there's a fair amount. And really, that's that's not even the point. Like A.E. Wait says that after a certain point, the specific cards are just a way to stir up your in, uh, your intuition. Where the actual card itself doesn't really matter that much. So, for me, whenever I lay out a spread, it's not about looking towards some higher power or, you know, consulting the spirit realm or being told what to do by... F- <laughs> cardstock. It's it's, it's cardstock. People have put a lot of meaning into it. People get a lot out of it. I do. But it's cardstock. Like, I I think people who uh, are scared of tarot and think you know Satan's gonna jump out of it, Adam, and people who take it like super seriously of like oh the cards say this is this is what must be, uh, it's more or less equally silly, because e- even if you do see it from a, a spiritual perspective, you do put uh, spiritual importance onto tarot. If the cards themselves are the be-all, end-all, I feel like you're kind of missing the point. Because the real opportunity there is you have these somewhat vague, but very varied. If I wrote scripts, I would have phrased that differently. But you have all these different cards that represent all these different things, and each position represents a different thing you want to think about, and it forces you to distance yourself from what you want to think about. Like, I know my complaint about Lockean uh, epistemology is that it's ridiculous to apply objectivity to subjectivity. So let me say, by objectivity, I mean separating one's perception from preconceived notions, biases, wishful thinking, all that. Because whenever you're looking at a... Like, the Celtic cross... Yeah, you're looking at these cards, you're like, well, what can this attach to? But what you're doing is you're trying to attach that card to raw data. Like, if you're looking at uh, the past and the future, it's like, well, what has happened previously? What is this middle one here now? The outcome? Uh, what's What could this spell? And it's not literally about knowing the future, but rather finding a more measured notion of what the future may hold. And I'm bringing this up in tandem with holy books, because interpretation has a key role in extremely similar ways. And for any any atheist who might balk at this, that you can view this in a psychological context. That what is being accomplished here is creating distance from what one desires to consider, while being forced to consider it from a different perspective, from a novel perspective, with the added bonus of this process coming from a place, coming from a uh, system which brings the person using it comfort. Now, the natural follow-up to this would be a discussion on subjective spirituality, but I have a... (laughs) I have an entire episode planned about that later in the season, so for now I'd I'd like to talk about interpretation within the subjective sphere, or subjective reality, more generally speaking. So I'd like to make a distinction between uh, the intuition and the understanding, you know, the way we apprehend the world versus the way we interpret it. Think of it like this. Whenever I look at a tree, the distinction I'm making is between, you know, getting the raw data of the shape of it, the colors, the aspects of the noumena, which are turned into phenomena within my mind, versus me being able to look at it and be like, oh, that's a tree. And I'll go more in depth with this whenever we get to the episode on ontology. But this uh, very basic form of interpretation is how we impose the nature of objects onto what we call objects. And for a little sneak preview of the ontology episode, I'm going to argue that this is the source of entities. But back to objects. So I have this mi- <laughs> Obviously I have a microphone in front of me. But it's not really a microphone. It just sort of is. Now, we could argue all day about what properties are inherent to the microphone as a thing in itself, but, and I <laughs> I'm making a bit of a Berkeleyan immaterialist argument here, without the interpretation of a subjective reality, the microphone doesn't really have any properties. I'm not saying that whenever I go in the other room it disappears, or even that observation is necessitated by existence, although, again, in the ontology episode, we will explore that idea, but rather I'm placing the primary anchor of properties onto the observer, as the microphone has to be interpreted as an object, as something beyond just a facet of existence. And I, I will undermine that statement, I'm just trying to not go into ontology right now, while also not trying to make this totally unintelligible. So let's leap back to perspectivism for a second. If we accept the idea that my experience is inherently different from everyone else's, it's unique, my experience of reality is, by its very nature, my own, then the way I see my microphone is solely the way I see my microphone. And what I would consider to be its properties, the way in which I would consider it to be an object, is unique to my experience. Now, we don't have to accept perspectivism to pursue this course of thought. But merely accept that humans are the only species which are going to assign the same properties to the microphone, or similar properties, or have the same conception of the microphone. Even if a gorilla, had <laughs> even if a gorilla sees the microphone exactly as I do. It lacks the interpretive resources, the cognitive facilities, to understand it to the extent I do. Now, we're, we're slowly tiptoeing into the intersubjective uh, section of this discussion, so I'm going to step back and look at the factors which would contribute to our subjective interpretations, which would make the argument for a somewhat perspectivist standpoint. And the three things I would outline are experience, memory, and culture. Now, I'm separating memory and experience because you can have an experience which shapes how you interact with the world without remembering it. Not necessarily trauma, but it could be something as simple as upbringing or habit where, as we're considering it, there would be a distinction between remembering growing up Catholic and having fish every Friday versus having the experience of having fish every Friday and not pulling from your memory when you're having a consideration that would bring up that experiential uh, chain but just being primed for that to be a norm up until you're exposed to other people who don't do the same thing and realize oh well I <laughs> this isn't even a cultural thing well maybe you could argue it's a cultural thing in that specific example but there are experiences which would prime the way in which you interpret, different scenarios. Likewise with memory, if, and I'm I'm just going to go for an extreme, if you remember hearing about, uh, I don't know, a, a distant cousin or a friend or something having some horrible experience with a certain scenario of another, you're going to interpret that from a biased standpoint. And then there's also the the cultural perspective, which is just what you've been inundated in, what seems normal. So I I guess what I'm I'm getting at is that there's multiple ways, from what I can tell seems to be memory, experience, and culture, which seems to inform our outlook about uh, various concepts and scenarios. And of course there's the physiological aspect to it. If the first time you had oysters you got sick, or if you're allergic to oysters, most likely you're going to think oysters are kind of gross. Now these biases and preconceived notions and these these different things that can shape our subjective interpretation aren't necessarily immutable, but they provide a strong force in the way we approach the world. And th- this is a line of thought I'll touch in uh, a-, a lot more deeply next season when I talk about character, which, m- probably not in the way you're thinking. But th- these these ideas are why I find the necessity for there to be an intersubjective reality acting as a middle ground between subjective realities, a communal sense of existence to furnish links between the individual sense of existence. And of course that brings us to the way in which we interpret intersubjectively. Or at the very least, the role in which interpretation plays regarding intersubjectivity, or the role intersubjectivity plays regarding interpretation. So let's go back to that example with the microphone. Consider the idea that things are defined by what they are not. They're defined by their relationship to everything else. And of course, I'm I'm going off of Hegelian dialectics here. Uh, in in this subjective sphere, I'm imbuing this microphone with the idea that. It has properties that is distinct from the things around it. And also, I'm my understanding of the microphone is informed by its relationship to my laptop, my voice, and not even my understanding, but what I think of when I look at this microphone. And if we look at things in purely the subjective reality, purely in terms of the subjective, Whenever I look at this microphone versus someone who, say for the sake of example, doesn't know what a microphone is, we're not quite looking at the same object, which seems strange to suggest, and that brings us to the intersubjective, because in any situation, we're not really looking at the same objects. We impose the idea of objects and entities And with this comes different connotations, understandings, possibly even the assignment of differing properties. But, I can tell you about my microphone, and I bet you didn't even pick up on it. You're probably imagining the thing in front of me, and you're wrong. Probably. There's... (laughs) <laughs> it depends on how many people listen to this. There might eventually be someone who has the exact right image of what my microphone looks like in their head, and that's absolutely wild. But for the, for the most part, you're wrong. Instead, what we have is this shared sound microphone connecting together our Subjective realities of apprehending things that, well, going off the definition of microphone, take my voice, put it into ones and zeros, and then into my laptop, and to audacity, and I'm overcompensating because I've realized I don't know how a microphone works. Something to do with sound waves and tubes. A A series of tubes. But this is where we hit full circle, and I'm, I'm excited because this is really cool to me. This relationship of interpretation within intersubjectivity is the same as we saw in art. And About, Jesus, like 30 minutes ago, I have been talking for so long. Days, it feels like. Almost like I don't record this in one sitting. But in this sense, communication isn't transmission, but interpretation and reinterpretation. I see this thing in front of me. I interpret a microphone. Everything that means all the property, and I'm telling you about it. And you're taking that word microphone, and you are interpreting that into what I mean, what I'm talking about, how I'm relating to the thing in front of me, how I feel about it. So, through intersubjective interpretation, we have better access to the consistent points of data, which plot out a solid way we can understand the world around us. It's not just that someone else being in the room, seeing the microphone in front of me and confirming that. It's, it doesn't just take the microphone out of the subjective sphere and place it into the intersubjective. Something real outside of my perception, but by interrogating these intersubjective artifacts, I'm able to gain a greater understanding within my subjective reality of these things that I'm interacting with. And obviously, that brings us to the idea of manufactured systems that's part of the project we're working on right now, is creating a systemic and well-thought-out consideration of existence. Because with manufactured systems, the, the role of interpretation there is it's not just looking at what we can learn from the intersubjective reality, but what we can gain from understanding these things, the intersubjective reality, how we interpret things within that, the subjective reality, how interpretation leads from that into the intersubjective, and so on and so forth. And really, at this stage, we're just talking about philosophy. As I've mentioned before, one of my favorite Wittgenstein quotes is this idea that philosophy is the articulation of intuition. Likewise, the uh, creation of a manufactured system allows for us to have a baseline for further interpretation. Like, I'm extremely gung-ho about uh, ontology, because I, I feel like if we start with just the, just the basic thing, the basic fundamental nature of being... we can build on from there to lived experience and make further conclusions based off of this but of course this draws the question is there actually something fundamental is there an an actual an absolute for us to try and discover i would say no at least not necessarily due to the limits of human understanding the existence of a world of truth, to borrow a phrase from Nietzsche, it's irrelevant. That's why I, I feel so convinced by Nietzsche's idea that it's it's just various levels of appearances. But the real determining factor is how easily we can find error within these appearances. Now, maybe things will change as time goes on, but for the moment... What we have is just appearances. Even in the condition of a static world of truth, it's not going to correspond with how we experience that world. The only real change would be a source for the consistencies that we're able to observe. And this might come off as nihilistic, but I think that there's great value in acknowledging the role of interpretation and how just omnipresent it is. How at any point in our lives, whether we're on our own or interact with other people or trying to understand the grand scheme of things, it's going to be based in interpretation because then we can avoid getting tunnel vision. Like with so many things, so much of philosophy is just so anthropocentric. it's it's considering... The, the vast expanse of existence from a human perspective. I'm not saying that, that, is, that there's something inherently wrong with that, but rather that that has to be acknowledged and dealt with. Otherwise, you're leaving out a huge amount of consideration in your intellectual pursuit. Well, that's been our episode on interpretation. Thank you for listening. I still haven't figured out how to end these things. Do I, do I say like and subscribe like a YouTuber? Does that even make sense? I'd, I'd also like to do some updates. Uh, if you didn't catch the last podcast, I have a Facebook page now for the Subjective Space. So check that out. I think eventually I will do a live event. I would love to give a lecture. And I would be dealing with that through Facebook because I, I don't know how else I would do it and also the the curious cat is still up I'm still gonna check it if you have any questions comments concerns whatever uh, but I'm going to start spending the time in between recording the podcast working on a book based off of what I've been talking about because uh, I, I found it very helpful making the podcast it really Lay out and get a better sense of my own ideas. I don't think so. I don't think this will be a huge problem. There's like four people who listen to this, and thank you to those four people. But there's a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon. I'm I'm looking forward to it. And um, well I'll see you. In- jeez I keep saying see. I'll talk to you next month. And this has been the Subjective Space.